Amen. This narrative of the woman anointing Jesus is, as I said, very familiar. There are actually four anointing stories in the Gospels, and that presents us and presents commentators with a bit of a problem. If you've read through the Gospels, you will have realized that the stories are similar, but not exact. And so I want to spend a little bit of time dealing with the hermeneutics of what we call the anointing narratives. The two that we read in Matthew and Mark are almost identical, in the, even the words that are used, and especially in the setting of the narrative within their overall story, their overall report. Both agree that the anointing, the event, took place at the home of Simon, who is called the leper. Now, it is undoubtedly true that Simon was no longer a leper, probably had been healed by Jesus, but the reason he, uh, we can say that he was no longer a leper was that if he had still been a leper, he would have been unclean. And by dining at his house, they would have been rendered unclean for the upcoming Passover feast. And so almost, in fact, I've not found one commentator who, who does not agree that he is called the leper probably in commemoration of a disease he once had, but was healed of, probably through the ministrations of Jesus. And so he is hosting this meal at which Jesus is reclining at the table. John's account is painfully similar to Matthew and Mark's. And the reason I say painfully is because he puts it a different place in his narrative. He puts it prior to the triumphal entry and actually specifies that it was six days before the Passover. In the narrative we are currently reading from verse 2, we are led to believe that the events are happening two days before the Passover. And so that, of course, leads to those who say that there are contradictions in the Scripture. In addition, John emphasizes the presence of Lazarus, the man whom Jesus raised from the dead, and does not mention Simon at all. Of course, the similarity there in the, two, the three stories is that it did take place in Bethany, a town about two miles east of Jerusalem through the Mount of Olives. John mentions the woman's name, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the man whom Jesus raised from the dead. Luke's account takes place in Galilee also at the home of Simon. Only this Simon is not a leper, he's a Pharisee, which some people might have thought is the same thing, but it was different. And it takes place long before Jesus makes his final journey to Jerusalem. And yet there are similarities in what the woman does. The woman is not named in that story as she is not named in Matthew and Mark. However, she is described in Luke's story as a great sinner. In fact, the Pharisees are saying, if this man were truly God, he would know in his heart what kind of woman this is. She was probably a prostitute. Or uh, an adulteress of some sort. She was a woman of ill repute, as was the woman at the well in Samaria. A woman to be shunned by the righteous Jews, by the Pharisees. So we have potentially three anointings. How do we deal with these? Well, the first thing is to 
realized that this process of anointing was common. In fact, Jesus in the Lucan account actually chastised Simon the Pharisee, his host. He says, you see this woman? When I came into your house, you gave me no water to wash my feet. She has not ceased washing my feet with her tears. You did not anoint my head with oil, which was the custom of honor to a visiting guest. She has anointed me with perfume and with her tears. So we read an affirmation, a confirmation of a cultural um, more a cultural practice whereby a guest was honored through the washing of his feet and the anointing of his head, often with costly perfume. It was a way of saying, you are welcome to my, you are honored in my home, something that Simon did not do, but this woman did not neglect to do. And so all commentators are agreed that Luke's account stands alone. It is earlier, different geographical region of Palestine, different home, different host, and different woman. Also a different message. It was a message of repentance. And Jesus said to that woman, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And it was given to us in Luke's account to again remind us that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So it had a different message. But what about the stories of John and Matthew and Mark, so similar in their context, so similar in their terminology, and yet with subtle differences that might make us think that either they're contradictions or there were actually two anointings around the time of Passover, one six days before, one two days before. Well, let's go over some of the facts of what the Scripture actually says, because oftentimes as we're reading a book, we are liable to read what we think is there rather than what is there. For example, Matthew and Mark tell us that it was at the house of Simon that this event took place, but John does not tell us that it was at the house of Lazarus. He merely tells us that Lazarus was there. Many commentators believe because in a village the size of Bethany there would probably not have been many wealthy families, that this was the family of Simon of whom Lazarus was the oldest son, and Mary and Martha the daughters. They were undoubtedly a wealthy family in hosting a great feast for the rabbi Jesus, but also, as, as we learn from this narrative, that the daughter might own uh, at least one vial of an incredibly expensive ointment. John tells us that it was Mary who anointed Jesus. But Matthew and Mark do not tell us that it wasn't Mary. They merely say a woman. Matthew and Mark, most commentators believe, were written earlier than the Gospel of John. Sometime shortly after the fall of Jerusalem, perhaps. That's a common dating. Whereas John's Gospel is usually attributed to the last decade of the first century. It may well have been, and, and some surmise, that Matthew and Mark do not mention Mary's name because she was still alive. And because her association with the, the upper class, of, due to her wealth, and with the anointing of Jesus for his burial, may perhaps have gotten her into unwarranted trouble. For whatever reason, Matthew and Mark do not mention the woman's name, where John says it was Mary, the sister of, of Lazarus. 
John places the event six days before Passover, but Matthew and Mark do not actually say that it took place two days before the Passover. Listen to what it says. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Now, when we read it, having just read verse 2, Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and we keep on reading, and aren't we in our mind two days before the Passover? That, that is thinking and reasoning as Westerners, very chronologically, very linearly, which is not how the scriptures are written. Because scripture often, in the midst of a narrative, go back <laughs> and talk about something. While Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, this happened. So what we have here is no contradiction. In other words, nothing that John says is contradicted by Matthew or Mark, and nothing that Matthew or Mark say is contradicted by what John says. We have here the narrative of one event that took, a place, took place in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, at whose feast was Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and the anointing of Jesus with expensive perfume by Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Those are the facts. The question then is, why are they not in the same place? Matthew, at least, was an eyewitness, right? Like John. Mark was a young man, we really, he may have been the John Mark that we read about later, or he may have been the young man who, who, who fled naked from the garden when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. There's a lot of surmising as to where Mark fits in, but he wasn't one of the disciples selected by Jesus. Matthew was. So, well, Matthew, is your memory going bad? Or maybe um, John, except John is very specific. He says that it took place six days before the Passover. Whereas Mark, Matthew doesn't say anything specific about the date, simply that while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, this is what happened. So we conclude, and I think reasonably, that the event did take place before Jesus entered Jerusalem. It took place six days before the Passover and not two days. But Matthew and Mark had a reason to take that narrative and to place it here in a logical order rather than a chronological order. And that is something about hermeneutics that often trips up Westerners. Because as I said, we tend to think linearly and we tend to think chronologically and we tend, as we're reading, to fall in to what we perceive to be the chronology and we miss those prepositions that the writer uses that indicate to us Hey, guys, we're not in the chronology anymore. We're over here, okay? Because I want you to remember something that happened while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, but I want you to remember it now because of the narrative that I am giving you. The context of what I am telling you makes this story pertinent because what we find here is Matthew and Mark both place a story of unsullied, selfish love and devotion smack in between conspiracy and betrayal. Listen to those bookends. Matthew 26, verse 3. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Conspiracy to grab Jesus and to condemn him and to kill him. And immediately afterward, in verse 14, then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Matthew and Mark want us to understand the atmosphere in which Jesus was approaching his passion. It was one of conspiracy and betrayal. John tells us about this, Judas. See, Matthew and Mark say the disciples were grumbling. But John tells us that it was, it was started by Judas. Judas was the one who said, hey, hey, this is worth like 400 denarii. It's like a year's pay here. This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But John says, Judas was the keeper of the purse from which he stole. He was not only a betrayer, he was a thief. He was a greedy man. He was a man full of iniquity, a son of perdition. And so the setting is being created for us. And we realize that sandwich between conspiracy and betrayal, in, in the midst of this pile of manure, there is one glorious diamond. And it must have been humbling in that culture for Matthew to have to admit that it was a woman. That it was a woman alone who realized who this man was. Who realized what he was doing. And not only accepted it, but embraced it by anointing him with such costly ointment. An ancient Greek philosopher said that anointing with perfume is the greatest of all gifts because it is used up in the giving. And, and this was what this woman was doing. Apparently the vials that they had, the alabaster vials, they, they didn't have corks and screw tops or childproof lids. They were narrow-necked vials that you had to break. And so you had to use it all or it would go bad. And so she took this year's wages and poured it out on the head of Jesus, her Lord. Matthew wanted his readers to know that there was someone, at least, whose devotion to Jesus was deep and pure. And he was honorable enough, and Mark as well, to acknowledge that he wasn't one of them. He tells us that the disciples murmured. The disciples grumbled. They all caught on to, to Judas's negative negativity. They all started grumbling among themselves at what this woman was doing. Undoubtedly, some of them were jealous. Some of them were jealous of her wealth, perhaps. Remember, these are fallen men, these disciples. As, as far as we know, yet redeemed. Yet to be redeemed. And Matthew admits he was one of those disciples. He puts himself in that number. But Matthew was also compelled, I think, as it were, by Jesus' own words. 
that were not merely a, a prediction of the future, but that had the power of prophecy. When he says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall, be also, shall also be spoken of in memory of her. So when Matthew came to write his gospel, maybe 30 years later, this event came to mind. And he may have been tempted to put it where Mark put it, where it actually occurred, six days before the Passover, right before the triumphal entry. But as he was recounting what went on during that time, he found a better setting. He found a setting that would highlight the devotion of this woman to Jesus. He found a setting that would highlight the cost and the significance, the meaning. One commentator says, the evangelists award a place of honor to the woman who constitutes a solitary exception and who, criticized by all except Jesus, accepts Jesus' burial in advance and assesses its true value. What I like about that commentator's comment was, I think, what the narrative shows us. She was indeed a solitary exception. This teaches us what Scripture teaches us, that at the end of his ministry, Jesus was abandoned by all, and yet not all. Those who should have known better, the disciples, didn't really know who this man in their midst was. They had confessed him as the Christ. They said he was the son of the living God. But they fell into a contempt when they were around him. And so I think the meaning of this message is, is not really so much, it, it's not so much what this woman did, what this woman knew, the commentator I just quoted assumes that the woman understood fully what she was doing. That may be the case. But it may be that Jesus understood what she was doing better than she did. We have no indication that she herself knew that she was anointing him for burial. She was doing something that was a common, significant, or, or uh, an act of honor to a guest. Jesus said, she is anointing me for my burial. Most commentators agree, however, that she knew the worth of the one she was anointing. And that's, I think, gets to the heart of this message because of Jesus' answer to the disciples grumbling. And Matthew puts it in a poetic structure. And this is one of those situations, unfortunately, when our English translations don't really bring out the, the point that's being highlighted. It should actually be separated from the rest of the text. Literally what he says, always the poor you have, me not always. It's in a chiastic structure, an X, which is common in Greek and Hebrew poetry. And it, it is meant to highlight something. Always you have the poor with you, me not always. And where is the focus? It's not on what the woman's doing. It's on the one for whom the woman is doing it. Have you been with me so long? It's as if Jesus is saying, have you been with me so long that you do not recognize the Holy One in your midst? You're worried about the poor. 
Although I know Jesus knew that one of them was not worried about the poor, but his own pocket. You're worried about your good works. You're worried about so many things. But I'm here. Nothing else matters. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Where Jesus is, is what matters. And Christianity throughout its ages has commonly forgotten that. It has commonly gotten into programs that focus on helping the poor, focusing on literacy, focusing on health, focusing on rights, focusing on things that in and of themselves are good things. But in doing that, they have forgotten the one thing that matters. The one thing that Mary chose, remember, and, and Martha didn't. She worried about other things. The Pharisees were all up in arms because, you know, Jesus' disciples, they, they just weren't morbid enough. They, they, didn't, they didn't fast enough. They, didn't, they weren't miserable enough. And what did Jesus say? How can the friends of the bridegroom mourn when the bridegroom is with them? There'll come a time when he's no longer with them and then they will fast. Just as he says here, you will have the poor and you will be able to help them whenever you want, which I think was a jab at Judas. Yeah, you'll be able to do it whenever you want, like never. But you will not have me always. And she, this woman, Mary, understands that. We don't have Jesus with us physically and there have been those who have used this passage to speak against ministry to the poor as being fruitless or as being unspiritual. We should really focus on Jesus. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying to them that you always have the opportunity to do that work. And I think it, it has to be ironic when we consider the woman who is doing this. This is not the sinner from Galilee. This is Mary, a woman of wealth. And wealth in that culture brought stature, but it also brought great responsibility. We have every reason to expect that the family of Lazarus, the family of Simon perhaps, of, whose, of whom Lazarus was his son, was a righteous family within Second Temple Judaism. And what did the righteous do? I mean, not righteous in and of themselves, but righteous according to the law, faithful to Jehovah, faithful to the law. What did they do? Well, they visited orphans and widows in their distress, and they gave to the poor. I think there was a, there was a sickening irony in this, that Mary was a righteous woman, and probably a woman who did all the things these disciples were grumbling about in their place, in their proper time. But alone of all these men, one woman realized the only thing proper right now is that man, Jesus. And the rest of the world goes out of the picture altogether. And Jesus said, she will be honored through the ages. How many of you can name all 12 disciples? You don't see my hand going up. 
But I remember this woman. Devotion in the midst of conspiracy and betrayal. Knowledge in the midst of ignorance. Devotion in the midst of these disciples who were so bullheaded, so stupid, that later on one of them would ask, show us the Father and then we'll be fine. They never got it. But she got it. And that's the message. There are a lot of things to do. Later, after Pentecost, when the Spirit had come, the church was born, these disciples were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they were poor in their midst. They were poor in the midst of the early church. In fact, most of the early church was comprised of poor and ignoble people. And so the believers brought all that they had and laid it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles distributed to each who had need. There was the time, and they did it. There is a time now for helping the poor. There is a time now for, for social action. There is a time now for proclaiming what is right against what is wrong. Jesus is not physically with us. But the message hasn't changed. And that is, he is of supreme importance. And everything else doesn't just pale. It disappears compared to him. And so the things we do are never counted as righteous before God if they are not done under that beam of light that comes from the risen Lord. Had the disciples power over that perfume, had they been able to intervene and take that perfume, and indeed, had they sold it and Judas not stuck his hand and taken some for himself, and had they given all of that to the poor, it would have profited them nothing and less than nothing. Because in doing so, they would have denigrated the glory of the one who was in their midst. And let me tell you, the church has done that many, many, many times. We have done good works. And in doing so, we have detracted from the honor and glory of our Lord, who alone is supreme, who alone is worthy. Before we can do good works... We have to learn what these disciples had to learn, what every believer has to learn, but what Mary already knew, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with that knowledge, the knowledge of the surpassing value of Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I pray that his worth would never be diminished in our minds, in our hearts. That nothing we do, nothing we hear, nothing we say would ever detract from his infinite value. And also, Father, nothing we have would be considered too valuable to sacrifice for his glory and his honor. We thank you for the example of this woman, this solitary exception to ignorance, conspiracy, and betrayal. 
this example of pure devotion and love. And all we can ask, Father, as undoubtedly Matthew and Mark asked of you, is that we might have the same heart, that our devotion to Jesus Christ might be as pure and might be as deep. Father, we ask that you would do this, that we might be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that we might, as it were, follow after Mary as she follows after Christ. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand this morning for the benediction. Today's benediction from Psalm 97. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserve the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Amen.